And when we speak, we are afraid our words will not be heard nor welcomed. But when we are silent, we are still afraid. So it is better to speak, remembering we were never meant to survive. Welcome to Better to Speak, the podcast, where we use storytelling to transform silence into language and action. I'm your host, Casey Belton. It's been 63 years since the Little Rock Nine started their first day of school, just like what any other high school around this time would be doing. On September 4th, 1957, nine black teens were recruited by Arkansas's NAACP president and local journalist, Daisy Bates, to integrate Central High School in Little Rock. One of them being Elizabeth Eckford, pictured in this week's cover art, who was infamously pictured making her sole walk from her bus stop into the school, with a group of her white classmates following closely behind her, threatening to lynch her. Her eight classmates were alerted about the potential escalation of protests the night before, and were able to coordinate coming together, but Eckford wasn't made aware of those plans because her family didn't own a phone. It's hard to think about the state of black students in schools in the years since Brown v. Board of Education, which of course deemed the segregation of public schools as unconstitutional, particularly now in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. We've seen the exacerbation of inequities along the lines of race and class that have negatively impacted students' access to online classes, placed an undue burden on caregivers and educators to navigate this, or has left them virtually defenseless due to mandates to resume in-person classes. On top of that, given the ongoing reckoning about racism, specifically anti-black racism, our education system has to reckon with how schools have long been a site of trauma and oppression for black students. My goal for this episode and through my work with Better to Speak is to explore the ways we can make education not just a tool necessary for personal success, but as a physical site of personal and more importantly, communal liberation. For this week's episode, I spoke with Eva Loren Jean Charles, the founder of Black on Black Education, which is a digital platform and fellow Black woman hosted podcast dedicated to supporting Black students. She recently graduated from the CUNY Baccalaureate Program for Unique and Interdisciplinary Studies, where she studied the sociology of educational inequity and social justice in underserved communities. We get into this a little bit in the interview, which took place a few weeks ago now, but Black on Black Education is coming off the heels of their recent two-day conference, which brought together dozens of educators to discuss ways to radically improve Black students' experiences. We also discuss the ongoing conversation about anti-racism, what that means for our schools, and how all members of our communities can be better advocates for Black students. My name is Eva Loren Jean Charles. I'm a recent graduate of John Jay College in Manhattan. And Black and Black Education was born out of a teaching experience that I had at the Center for Alternative Sentencing and Employment Services, um, better known as CASES. It is a alternative sentencing program um, that provides educational services and employment services to folks who have gaps in their education due to criminal justice. And so honestly, I had just been in a lot of social justice courses that continually were using the or talking about the framework of Black and Black crime. And I just felt like if there can be black on black crime, there can be black on black education. And so we should be coming together as a community to educate ourselves and others on how to support us. And we've been doing that work ever since. And one of the events that I recently saw you guys had was the anti-racism versus I'm not racist um, event. And I think that's one thing, you know, in my own journey with um, working around educational equity in my hometown in Cobb County, like that's one thing that I hear a lot 
um, primarily from white folks who are like, I'm not racist, and they think that that's an excuse to, you know, not put forth any more effort um, towards educational equity. So what would you say is like that, um, what was that conversation like? What do you think, what do you hope participants took from it? I think participants really took a second to like, realize that the conversation about race and equity is not as scary as it has been portrayed. I think white dominant society, the system of racism has actively tried to attack people feeling comfortable in a space of creating change. They want to make that space very uncomfortable so that folks have to be very uncomfortable because people don't want to be uncomfortable. And so I wanted to create that space to say, I'm not mad at you for any time that you've said I'm not racist. I can raise my hand and say that even as a black woman that I've said I'm not racist or I'm not prejudiced or trying to, to trying to really just show that I am I am the person who I say I am. I am a good person. I leave actively that's what people were told, right? Like the goal was just not to be racist, not to call people the N-word, not to to invest in people who are overtly racist. Like that is what people have been taught in the conversation about race. And so I wanted to create a space that was comfortable. And I think participants, by the fact that we're on part three and people are still asking for more, I think that that's an indication that there's a lot of folks out there that want this information. And I think another indication is just what people have told us. The other folks who are asking, like, what can I do? The emails that we get after um, the events where people are asking for more resources and what to read and what to do, like, that's really showing that it is is the time for this. We have to just maximize our efforts as it pertains to making sure that people realize that it's not enough just to not be something. Um, When we talk about sexual assault, we don't want people who just don't sexually assault others. We want people who actively stop those behaviors from happening and create the next generation of people who understand that we can't behave in that manner. And it's the exact same thing that has to happen with racism. Putting that in context, what role do you think that the fight for educational equity and like the work that people are doing in schools, like how does that fit into the larger conversation about systemic racism? So not just, you know, of course, not just with schools themselves, but how do they fit into a larger like ecosystem in the community? Absolutely. It fits perfectly. When we think about the fact that systemic racism the system was in place so that black people couldn't read. I don't know how many people really sit and digest the fact that there were laws on the books in the United States of America that said that black people could not learn how to read and write. And so that shows you one, how powerful it is to be able to read and write and how important it is that we invest time and energy when we're thinking about equity into our children, into our next generations, but then also into our adults, right? Because we forget how many people we have. There's been systemic policies since the beginning of this country around education and the education that black people deserve. And because of the education that has been provided to so many black people, we have a lot of adults who cannot read and write to the capacity that they should, um, cannot articulate and critically think in the way that they should. And so if we're talking about political equity, we can't have political equity if folks can't read and write, right? We can't have um, healthcare equity if people can't read and write and don't understand what their policy means, right? So I think it's at the absolute corner like it's the cornerstone of what we need when we're talking about equity because if people don't have education don't have the ability to formulate thought don't have the ability to take care of themselves um know how to interact with others all of those things are so incredibly important and we can't have a society um that is 
committed to justice and equity without having an equitable education system that have, that gives opportunity to students uh, regardless of their socioeconomic status or their zip code. I'm assuming that you guys will be discussing this at the, the conference that you guys are having, I saw, um, on your website and social media. Um, yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about that and what participants will be able to expect from that conference? Absolutely. So the Black Education Conference is a partnership between Black on Black Education and the Black Education Agenda. We came together to say, like, just because there's COVID, just because there's quarantine, just because there's um, George Floyd and protests and all of these sorts of things that are going on in our world all around us, just because those things are happening does not mean that we can't create space for for change. And so the, the Black Education Conference is not going to be talking solely about anti-racism, but it's going to be having a conversation to every single person who's in service of Black students. The Black Education Conference is a commitment to Black students. So if you are a person who works in a prison and is teaching GED classes there, you need to be at this conference. If you're a teacher, a K through 12 educator, if you're a professor, um, if you have Black students in your classroom, and honestly, even if you don't, because the fact that you don't is telling, right? And it's telling of systemic racism and what that looks like. And so anybody who's in service, if you're a parent, like anyone who's in service of Black students, it is incredibly important um, to get the knowledge and the information that's necessary to create the sorts of changes that we want to see in the world. Because I think, again, like I said last time, I think it all starts with education. It's absolutely necessary. And I wouldn't be where I'm at if it wasn't for the education that I received and the commitment from my parents to making sure that I got what I needed. And we just need to start holding our institutions, our schooling institutions, our public education system and our charter systems to the to the caliber. Like I am not pro-charter, anti-charter, none of those things. I am pro-good schools. And the only way we're going to have good schools is if we have good educators. And so if educators are arming themselves, administrators are arming themselves, policymakers are arming themselves with this knowledge, then we can start recreating a system that is actively anti-racist in the bedrock of everything it's doing. A couple of things that you mentioned, but firstly, you mentioned um, the coronavirus pandemic. So what has been yeah. the main thing that you've seen like from, you know, the people that you work with? I think this coronavirus has definitely like shown a lot of, you know, the already existing um, racial uh-huh. inequities. Um, and so I'm interested in what your thoughts are, like how that has impacted education, would you say is like the main thing? It's affected so much, right? Like I'm a college student I was and, and I have a lot of friends who are currently in college and this has been an extraordinarily hard experience for them. They had to tra- transition um, living their lives outside of their homes to living and doing everything inside of their homes. We, we I think the biggest thing that, that the mainstream media has taken account is that people don't have access to internet, that they don't have access to, to one-to-one computers or one-to-one tablets or the th- sorts of things that you need to have a virtual um, schooling system that is giving students the support that they need. But honestly, for me, it's the social and emotional aspect of being um, of being cut off from our everyday lives. I I know that I, my mental health definitely took a toll in the beginning of the quarantine just from the fact that I was not seeing the people who I saw every day. I wasn't in my my same routine and I was kind of thrown off from a lot of things. So we had to figure out, okay, if we're talking about a four-year-old, five-year-old, six-year-old, even 15 and 16-year-olds, their social life is extraordinarily important. And I think our education system, that's something that we lack. We unfortunately don't 
pay close attention to how important it is for students to be social. And so when school was cut off and turned into, into a virtual setting, there wasn't a commitment to that. There wasn't a, we need to make sure that kids are still getting their social um, capital. And, and so I think that that was, is one of the biggest things that I've definitely heard and I'm seeing. Um, there's a lack of social, um, social ability that students have and they didn't know where to go with it, right? Instagram is fantastic for a while. FaceTime is cool for a while, but humans crave person-to-person contact. And so I think that, that COVID and, and like coronavirus has definitely taken a hard, a hard hit there. And, we can, and, we're, and, we're, and we're forgetting about the students who were home isn't safe, right? Um, so there's a lot of kids whose whose home is not safe. When I was when I was younger, my home life was not safe, and so I can't even rem- imagine what it would have felt like to have to exist in my home for three four months without being able to leave or go anywhere else. Um, I can't imagine what students are going through. So I think that's one of the biggest things as we go back, and even if you are in a fully virtual place, to really make a commitment that you're going to hold the social need of the child to the same caliber that that will hold the the academic one. And another thing that came to mind as you were talking is this idea that like the fight for educational equity isn't just for, you know, K through 12, it isn't just for, you know, public schools as we may um, be familiar with. It's like higher education, like you mentioned, um, education within prisons, um, you know, just just a a wide variety of of ways that education can show up in a formal setting. So what... um, what are some of those like intersections that you feel people may miss, I guess, in this fight or conversation for educational equity? I think it, it piggybacks off of what I what I just said. I think the biggest thing that we're missing is the fact that education should not be looked at as something that we just get or that happens to us, right? So we don't go to school and education just happens to us. We have to absorb that information that we're getting and then we have to figure out how to make it applicable to other parts of our life. And so um, with with the conference, like with a lot of other work that we've done at Black on Black Education, we want something that when someone leaves that event, they have a new thought or new idea, a new something that's galvanizing them in a new way. Um, I think that that's something that school misses a lot is that they're so used to teaching the same four things in the same two and a half ways and they're not being innovative and exciting as it pertains to the fact that children are, they don't have long, long attention spans. And because of our phones, we don't have large attention spans as adults. And so we have to get into the fact that the world is changing and that it's changing a lot faster than we're ever going to be able to catch up with. But if we don't have innovation at the center of what we're doing in education, then we're going to be so, so far behind, which is what we're seeing in our education system right now. We're seeing places in other countries where kids speak better English than the United States. We're seeing people having higher math scores, science scores, all these sorts of things. And not that I think testing is the end all be all, but I think at the end of the day, when you really look and and take a take a take a tip from some of the best schools in the country, and I don't mean best in terms of the rating by Betsy DeVos, but <laughs> best um, by a standard of you're churning out students who are ready for the world. They are paying attention to social emotional learning. They're paying attention to cultural relevancy. They're paying attention to the child's mental health, their psychological well-being. They're paying attention to the whole child, the whole person. And then the who's behind that person, right? The families, the parents, 
who are who is this person and who are they going to go out into the world to be and you should be paying attention to those things from pk on because the whole child is who's going to go out and change the world if we only look at the academics or how well a child tests we're not we're not going to do that and so we're missing um the fact that education is so 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 much more than reading a textbook or being able to read and write and then that's it you want people who are able to read and write and critically think and ask incredible questions and have a have a social interaction with a difficult person in a way where they are not angry after they leave there's just so much that i wish I, that i still have to learn and i think that we live in a world that says well they're going to learn it when they get older they're going to get it when they get older but then when they get older we're telling them they have to know what they're going to do with their life when they get older, we're telling them, oh, well, you're going into a business setting, be professional. But they don't know what that means because we're not having those conversations in school. And so I, I think what's being missed is really just a commitment to the whole person because we forget a lot of times that students, just because they're kids, doesn't mean that they don't have incredible ideas, incredible educate. Like they, they can teach you so much. You I, Everything that's going on, I asked my three-year-old cousin, how do you feel about the protests and, whatever, and what's going on in the world? She goes, I just think everyone should be nice to each other and we should just really care about each other because black people are just as good as other people. I go, <laughs> solved it. Talking to a three-year-old, she solved it. And so we're just at the point where we have to really think about and, and make sure we formulate the fact that these are people walking into this room just because they're younger than us that has, that has no bearing on how we should treat them. And so let's make sure we're looking at the whole person, the whole child, and treating a child with the same amount of respect that you would treat the administration of your school as a teacher. And I think you'll see a big difference in how the, how the children are communicating with you and interacting with you in the classroom. Right. And in the same vein, um, I saw that you for the conference the day before you're having like a listening session with uh, students. Yes. So it was like uh, the, the choice to have that intentional conversation and center their voices when you're creating solutions for education. Well, it, it's it's like it's like having an issue in a building because because you have a new person who's deaf and you make these changes because the person is deaf, but you don't ask them what they need. That doesn't make any sense. Right. And so if, if we're recreating and we're reimagining what the public education system can look like, how are we doing that without talking to children? I'm, I'm having conversations with schools who are like, we're trying to ramp up our anti-racism and like figure out what it is that we need to do. And I'm like, well, did you ask the students? Because you probably wouldn't have, I mean, I want you to pay an education consultant, <laughs> but you probably wouldn't have to bring one in if you listen to the kids who are feeling it or who are experiencing it in the moment, right? And so I think that's just been at, also been at the cornerstone of what Black on Black Education wants to do. How are we gonna have conversations about what education should and could look like without talking to students? And so we really just made the, we made it with intention. And that event is not, um, I will not be moder uh, moderating, my dad will not be moderating, who's my co-founder. Um, we have a student moderating a panel of other students and it's going to be her questions of like what she wants to see and what things she wants to have changed. And so I'm just really excited to be able to sit down and, and I will be a listener. I will be just kind of watching and seeing how things go and it will inform the way that we ask questions during the conference and who, and what we ask questions about, because it's going to bring up some things that the more, the more, the older you get, I, I've found the less imagination that we have. And so we should have young people coming in with their imagination, with their bright eyes and their optimism and giving them the opportunity to have their voices heard because we have to, the civil rights movement, who was at the cornerstone of that? Young people. And every movement and so on and so forth for the history of our world. And so we have to start listening to young people because they're not out in the streets yelling for no reason. Right. 
What role do you feel like community members who may not necessarily be educators or parents of children in school or like, you know, just within that realm of education, um, what role do they play in this fight for educational equity? How can they support this fight? Absolutely. Um, pay attention to what your your the people running in your local community are saying about education, saying about what their commitments are. Um, the community in which you live will usually be the adults that are starting to run the community, right? We we realize that that people stay where they're where they're comfortable, and so I know plenty of people who've lived in the South Bronx their entire life. Their mom has lived in the South Bronx her entire life, and so on and so forth, and so. We have to say that that cycle matters to everybody. So the students, if you're going to be older and you want to make sure that you have you have um, community advocates who are advocating for you as an older person, well, then you have to commit to the next generation of students who are going to go and take those powers. And so... Um, what can you do? Go to a school board meeting, regardless of having children or not, and listen. And then when you hear something that's not being said, or you have a question, or you want things um, to be addressed in a, in a different way, because unfortunately, in my community, I live in Westchester, I don't hear um, nearly enough from local officials about what they're going to do with, about education. And that has to change, because when people don't how many years ago healthcare nobody was talking about it right now no politician can go anywhere without talking about healthcare it's because people have put their feet to the fire so it's just consistently putting the holding people accountable and putting their feet to the fire and making sure that they make commitments to you and then and that they follow through with those commitments because if they're not even talking about education while they're campaigning that means that, that it's not something that's even in the even in the 15th most important thing that needs to happen and we know that it is it's just so incredibly important when we look at um, crime rates and education you look at them you they, they are definitively uh, positively correlated with one another right and given everything um, you know with the, the coronavirus and how schools are planning to go back like and like you said about elections and politicians and their stances on education like like what do you want to see from like school boards and politicians as we're planning to go to send students back or not or have virtual or hybrid or whatever the case may be? I want to see a drastic change. I want, I want to see not, I want to, I don't want to hear one day. I don't want to hear, Oh, it's going to happen. Oh, these things take time. I don't want to hear any of those phrases because they don't take time. If you don't make them take time. Right. If you're, if you're in a position of power, you have the power to make the change or at least advocate for it. And so if you're a principal of a school, I know that you, that the superintendent is the person who, who's beating down you, who, who you have to report to. I get that. But if the principal of the school and the principal of the middle school and the high school and the elementary school are all saying that we want to make these changes, well, then the superintendent is going to listen in a different way than if you stayed quiet and you continue to act as though it's not as important as it is. And so what I want to see going into the next year is town halls for students. Because when was the last time that schools really sat down and said, you know what, maybe we should be listening to our students. Maybe we should be asking our students what they need, um, what, what, what their experience is, and then making sure that the teachers are required to listen to that. Because it shouldn't just be an administration who's saying that this is what students said. It should be teachers hearing what students said, feeling the emotion of those students. Because I know I had some extraordinarily racist situations in, in my predominantly white high school that made me feel small and made me feel terrible. And if I was able to have my voice be heard because I felt like it was safe for my voice to be heard, then I would have done so but it wasn't. And so creating safe spaces, having an 
I want an equity committee that is n- that it's not just, oh, we have an equity committee. I want an equity committee that meets every month, an equity committee that is in charge of taking in these intakes of children who've had these experiences in that school building, because that's going to be the only way where something changes. When you put a blindfold on and you can't see anything and you say that it's dark, well, it's not actually dark. So when you're not listening to kids and you're not hearing what they're saying about how they're experiencing their education or how they feel in your school building, and this is for predominantly people of color as well, because too often we just think, oh, well, it's predominantly teachers of color. They have to be innovative. They have to be committed to anti-racism. No, they're still in that I'm not racist mindset and that mindset that it's enough. Anti-racism is a commitment to combating an issue. And so I'm asking schools to go into the next year with a commitment to combating, a commitment to changing, um, a commitment to changing the culture of buildings, right? I I talked to a student from a school the other day who told me that someone in class kept making, was consistently making jokes about black people being like monkeys. And it was in earshot of the teacher The teacher said nothing, brushed it off as a joke. And then when she got upset and said, you're being racist right now, I need you to stop. Like, I don't want you talking like that anymore. She was scolded for calling someone racist. And that is very indicative of experiences of students all over the country. Kids understand. I have had kids as young as three years old tell me, that oh you have like you have really dark skin like why is your skin so dark like that why are you black like i'm not black why, they understand what being what what race means and they understand the ramifications of it so even the elementary school teachers like oh they're too young no they're not cuz they understand they do and so you what you're supposed to be doing is guiding them in understanding that it doesn't it does matter but that it shouldn't because we can't keep telling kids it doesn't matter because we know that it does. Because then they go out into the world in this colorblind society where I don't see race. It does matter, but it shouldn't. And your job is to go out into the world and make sure that it doesn't. That's what educators need to be doing right now. And if that is not the commitment, then you have then the school has some some thinking and planning to do. And and I'm in New York, so y'all got a little bit of time. <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, is there any like last words or last bits of advice that you would like to give, or any just like closing statements? Yeah. Um, Anybody who's listening to this who has a commitment to education equity, please reach out to Eva at blackhomeblackeducation.com. I'd love to collaborate with you. I'd love to talk with you. I'd love to figure out ways uh, for us to continue to combat this horrible system that needs to be long, long gone. We need to hear your voices. So it's less it's, it's less about the information that we're going to be giving you, but also about the, the information that you can be giving us and the, and the paths forward for communication about education equity and the support of black students. Because for too long, it's been um, just an, an ambiguous fight. And we need to make it very, very, very clear exactly what we're fighting for. And that's what we're trying to create uh, with the Black Education Conference. And so we hope, hope, hope to see you there. That's it for this episode. You can find us on social media at better to speak underscore or on our website, bettertospeak.org. If you want to sponsor an episode and support Better to Speak, you can find the link to donate in the description of whatever podcasting platform you're listening on. Be sure to tune in to future episodes where we'll dive into various sociopolitical topics with the goal of transforming silence into language and action. Once again, I'm your host, Casey Felton. Thank you for listening.